are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. Welcome to Where Your Treasure Is. I am one of your hosts, Bex, and I'm with our other host, Simon. Hello. And today, hello, you surprised me there. Uh, (laughs) Today, we are on our final episode of our season on giving. So, Simon, what have we looked at so far in this season? Oh, you're making me remember now. We've talked about why we give, uh, what we can give. We've talked quite a lot about how we give efficiently and effectively when to give, who to give to, who not to give to. We talked a bit about attitudes behind giving as well. So a lot of this season has been rooted in the real practicalities. So firstly, the heart behind our giving and then how we actually do it. But I think one of the most powerful things in giving is understanding where it goes and the difference it makes. Often in the church that I go to, when we have our moment where we bring our offering, we actually tell a little story about the impact that money's had. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, aren't we, Simon? Yeah, not so much about the impact that our church has when it comes to giving, but the wider impact of giving. I love stories too. When I talk about my own journey of generosity, I typically start with my own story. And maybe we'll have time at the end of this episode, I can tell you a bit of my story. But I wanted to hopefully inspire and encourage our listeners and you, Bex, with some of the bigger stories of generosity that I've come across. I just love hearing God at work in people's lives and how it can transcend generations. And when you say big stories and transcend generations, you are not kidding because some of these stories are going back centuries. And I think so often in our modern world, We're only really interested in what's happening now and how it affects us. And so it's going to be really interesting to kick off with a story that goes way, way back and the hundreds of years of impact that that giving has had. Simon, why don't you kick us off with it? I will kick off and I'll put it in context as well. So even just this last month, my kids were at a Christian youth festival. And they met with God and they met with other Christians and they were inspired and encouraged. And it's led them to think about the Bibles that they have, what versions of the Bible they read, because there are many of them and they're different. And as they get older, they want to progress towards more modern readings and translations of the Bible. But it's really important that what they're reading is what was really said. And this was a really big problem 500 years ago. Okay, we are going back to 1523. So it's actually, in the year we're recording this, exactly 500 years ago. And there was a chap, he was an English preacher, and his name was William Tyndale. And he was a pretty powerful preacher. Now, to give you context here, I'm taking a lot of the content of this story from a book called Gospel Patrons by a chap called John Reinhardt. It's called People Whose Generosity Changed the World. And certainly William Tyndale changed the world. But he was a poor preacher and he wasn't doing terribly well by himself. And then he met a guy called Humphrey Monmouth. Now, Monmouth was a wealthy cloth merchant. And the two of them, once they had met, they began to work together with Monmouth funding a radical and somewhat subversive project that Tyndale had in mind. You see, in 1523, 
in England and pretty much across the world where you could get them, there was only really one Bible. And it was the Latin Vulgate. Six million English speakers couldn't read the Latin Vulgate because they didn't speak Latin. And that Bible itself had remained unchanged and unchallenged for a thousand years. And that is what Tyndale put to Monmouth. I'll quote him in modern English. The Latin Vulgate has gone unchanged and unchallenged for a thousand years. Tradition after tradition has been built upon it. But I've read the New Testament in its original language, says Tyndale. The Greek makes clear that some official practices are based on mistakes. With a Bible in the language of the people, translated from the original Greek, we could steer our whole nation back to Christianity's true core, faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Monmouth was hooked. And he strategized with Tyndale. He sent Tyndale across to Germany where there were printers who would let you translate and print Bibles. He smuggled Bibles back into England as part of his business. And later... At quite a young age, Tyndale was martyred because of what he had done in terms of translating the Bible into English. But the fruit of their partnership birthed nothing short of a reformation that shook England and then the entire world. What a story. Oh, it's exciting, isn't it? And what I love about that story is that most of us have probably heard the name Tyndale or we've seen it on a Bible somewhere. But how many of us have heard of Humphrey Monmouth? And just the idea that this man, he gives in obscurity, his hidden is giving, his name isn't on the Bibles, and yet he goes on to shake the world. And actually for him, that must have also involved risking his reputation massively as well. We spoke about that quite early on in this season of things you can give. And one of the things you can give is support and influence and reputation. Now, if I remember the story correctly, I think Monmouth spent time in the Tower of London because of what he had done. But he was willing potentially to sacrifice not only his wealth and his reputation, but also his life for a cause that he was passionate about. And if we think about Simon's hierarchy of giving from episode seven, he was a dedicated giver. Absolutely. And even on just that really personal and human level, to be willing to sacrifice his relationship with his family and to be isolated from them in order for his life to serve a greater cause is just really inspiring. So that's our first story. And it's one that goes back hundreds of years and still has an impact today across the whole world. Now, our second story is probably slightly better known. It has been turned into films. It's had books written about it. It's the story of the song Amazing Grace. It's a song that most people have heard of, Christians and non-Christians. It's that popular. And we're now going back about 200 years. And I'll give you the short version. If you're interested, read the book, go and watch the film there's different films called Amazing Grace. Find the right one. So we're talking now about John Newton. And if I remember correctly, John Newton was a sailor. And actually, he was a bit of a drunkard and a down and out. And he ended up working on a slave trading ship to the point that he owned a slave trading ship. He was a slave trader. 
But God effectively pulled him out of that and turned him into a cleric. He was working for the church and he wasn't doing terribly well out of it. But you know what? He occasionally wrote a song now and again and his songs were pretty good, but nobody really got a chance to hear them. And then somehow he got alongside a guy called John Thornton. Now at the time, John Thornton was one of the wealthiest businessmen in all of England. So what Thornton basically did was encourage Newton, not just in writing some of these songs down, but he basically said, right, if you write them in a book, I will underwrite the first thousand copies to be printed. I'll pre-buy them and then give them away to loads of people. He gave them away to future church leaders and missionaries and leading laymen, and even someone called William Wilberforce. That first hymn book of Newton's included the song Amazing Grace. And that song, Amazing Grace, has been an amazing impact of grace on generations of people since then to now, and hopefully many, many years into the future. And once again, it comes down to somebody being generous with their time and their money and their reputation. And a quick Google tells me that apparently Amazing Grace is played over 10 million times a year. That is wild. And what's so interesting about this story to me is, again, that willingness to take a risk on someone who was a slave trader, who was not reliable, and who was in many ways kind of at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And also the fact that this person was willing to support a creative endeavor. So often we can dismiss creative expressions as being less important and having less impact than something like building a house or feeding someone. And while those things are very important, it is amazing that supporting effectively a songwriter has impacted billions of people around the world. And it's extended far beyond just Christianity in Christian circles. Amazing Grace has had an impact on society as a whole. And I think it's great that even today, we still see many Christians writing songs and those songs having an impact. Another story now, we're going to move a little bit away from traditional clerics and songwriters and missionaries. And we're going to go into the world of chocolate. Finally. Finally, we got there. Now, I'm going to give credit to this story. I heard it actually on a Songs of Praise episode. And I was so chuffed because it uh, relates to my favorite brand of chocolate, which is Cadbury's. All other chocolate is a mere sideshow by comparison. As a Galaxy fan, I feel personally attacked by that, but we'll move swiftly on. You know what? I like a Galaxy, but I can only eat so many of them in one sitting and then I run out of capacity. So we're going to go back to a chap called George Cadbury. And George Cadbury was doing quite well in cocoa production and he wanted to expand. He needed a place where he could build a nice new factory, but he also had a passion for the people who worked for him. He didn't just want them to be in the same conditions that most factory workers were at the end of the 19th century. In fact, he thought it might be good to get people to go to work in the countryside. He liked the countryside, it's a good place to go on holiday, so why not just live there and work there? So he found this little village, called Bourne, B-O-U-R-N. And he thought, I'm going to buy this village and some land around it. I'm going to make it sound even nicer. I'm going to add the word from the French, village, ville. I'm going to call it Bourneville. Which is the best Cadbury's chocolate. 
It's not. Once again, we have found a discrepancy. Sorry, Bex. So Bourneville was created and he built a factory. But also, he created playgrounds for children. They had country outings. They had summer camps. Men played football and hockey and cricket. He was creating this environment, this culture, around the production of chocolate, where his workers were well looked after. I got this figure. Uh, it was in 1902, and 30% of Cadbury's entire capital expenditure went on workers' welfare. They built tennis and squash courts with bowling greens and swimming pools. And the swimming pools had heated changing rooms. Wow. These were unheard of, fantastic facilities in Victorian times. Cadbury became one of the first firms to introduce half-day working on a Saturday. They were working six days a week until then, which could be biblical. People said to Cadbury, it's going to mean ruin. But he thought that neither he nor his workers could be happier. But I heard this story because there's a, a lady who currently works at Cadbury's. Her name is Natasha. And Natasha's grandfather also worked at Cadbury's. But he was Serbian and he had fought in the Second World War. He was put in a concentration camp when he was captured. And at the end of the war, the concentration camp was liberated by the Allies. The camp was taken over and each person who was liberated was told to go and pick a line to choose which country they wanted to go to. So her grandfather chose the British line. And he was taken to Britain, ended up in the Midlands, and ended up working for Cadbury's post-World War II because they were taking in many, many workers to replace those actually who had died during the war. About 300 Serbians started working at Cadbury's. And in 1962, a group of them went to the then chairman, that was Sir Adrian Cadbury, to see if he would sell them a piece of land that was part of the Bourneville village because they wanted to build a church, their own church, a Serbian church. And he said, yes, with one condition. I've got this bit of land and yes, you can build a church there, but I want to know that you're serious and motivated about what you're going to do. So go away and if you can come back with £5,000, we'll have a chat about it. So they went away. And within three weeks, they had remortgaged their houses, they had put in their savings, they did the fundraising, they came back, they put £5,000 on the desk in front of Adrian, and he thought to himself, they really mean business. He pushed the money back to them, he said, you can have the land, and here's £5,000 to go towards building the church. And that was the first ever purpose-built Serbian Orthodox Church in the UK. And what is fascinating about that story is firstly the view of the holistic person. So Cadbury wasn't just interested in giving people enough to survive, but actually wanted them to be truly happy, to be fulfilled. And it wasn't a case of, oh, you know, I'm being generous and I'm ensuring you have a job, but it was going above and beyond that. And then that story about the Serbian church, I just love that because in that moment, Adrian sowed the seeds of intentionality and being deliberate. And we've talked about that so much with giving, but how amazing that actually you can do that and then still be generous. I mean, he gave consistently in so many ways, but can you imagine being those Serbians walking into the room, we've raised the money, we can buy the land. And then he says, you can have it for free and start building your church. That delight, they hadn't just bought something, they had been given something far beyond 
what they're expecting. What an encouragement and what a blessing. So good. Right then, Simon, let's have your next story. Well, one of the reasons I like the story of Cadbury, apart from that it's chocolate-based, is that it reminded me of a place where I grew up right next to. And this place is called Port Sunlight. And if you know it, it's on the Wirral Peninsula, Merseyside, just over the River Mersey from Liverpool. And in 1887, there was a company called Lever Brothers. And they had taken the world of soap manufacture by storm. It used to be you'd go into the, the chemist's shop and you'd say, I want to buy some soap. And he'd get a big block out and then he'd source them off for you and wrap it in paper and hand it over. And they decided that you would sell soap pre-barred and pre-wrapped. And that was sunlight soap. And it was huge and it made them a fortune. And they wanted to expand. So they did the same kind of thing that Cadbury did. They bought a big chunk of land. They built a factory there. And then they built a model village. What's a model village? It's not a really small village. It's like an ideal village. And Lever wasn't the first person to do this. It had been done for much of the 19th century. But he was the first person seemingly to bring many, many elements together all in one go. And that village is still beautiful to this day. He employed 30 different architects and each one got to build a block of houses. And between 1899 and 1914, 800 houses were built to house a population of three and a half thousand workers in the factory. The village had allotments for the workers and public buildings. He built an art gallery in the name of his wife, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, a cottage hospital and schools and a concert hall, an open air swimming pool, a church, a temperance hotel. You couldn't get alcohol there. He introduced welfare schemes, education and entertainment for the workforce. The aim, according to Lord Leverhulme, as he became, was to socialise and Christianise business relations and get back to that close family brotherhood that existed in the good old days of hand labour. Now, he claimed that Port Sunlight wasn't just philanthropy, it was an exercise in profit sharing. But rather than sharing profits with his workers, he invested them in the village. He said this, it would not do you much good in terms of the profit that was being shared, if you sent it down your throats in the form of bottles of whiskey or bags of sweets or fat geese at Christmas. On the other hand, if you leave the money with me, I shall use it to provide for everything that makes life pleasant. Nice houses, comfortable houses and healthy recreation. So quite a paternalistic attitude, but it seemed that people wanted to come and work for him. Now, many, many years later, it is acknowledged and recognised that although he had a very philanthropic nature towards his workers in England, his attitudes towards his workers overseas and in the plantations that he bought and set up in the Solomon Islands and the former Belgian Congo weren't quite so good. There was slave labour over there. There were very poor practices. I think sometimes it's acknowledged he tried to change it, but at times he also succumbed. So whilst he was generous in some respects, maybe everyone has a, a bit of a dark side as well. And that story really feels like a tale of two halves. Firstly, there's obviously the incredible generosity, but actually even within that, there's no empowerment for the people he has been generous to, to then go on and thrive perhaps in the way Cadbury did. And so there's a question there about when we give, are we also then empowering people to go on to make their own decisions and perhaps to learn how to manage their money? 
And then the second thing that strikes me is just the importance of integrity and that actually if we are not consistently giving, if we are not the same person in one setting as we are in another, then it has the potential to undermine our whole character. Because I imagine that once you know that this man was engaging in slavery and owning plantations, it's then quite hard to view his generosity in other areas through the same lens. In a much less powerful way, I suppose, it's also a challenge that I face in my career, and I think many of us can face in choices we make day to day. Are we living out some of our beliefs in the choices we make around what food we buy, what clothes we wear, where they're sourced, fast fashion, fast food, things that could be damaging to other people in other parts of the world, but we don't make conscious choices about them because we don't see the impact. And in a world where we have many more choices, are we prepared to sacrifice maybe some of our luxuries for the welfare of those who are not so privileged? And ultimately, both our decisions that we have to make and levers come down to convenience. And are we willing to sacrifice not just our money, but as you said, some of our comfort or some of our ease as well? Well, I've got one more story for you, Bex. Excellent. Interested to see what you make of this one. This is the story of a guy called John Lang, L-A-I-N-G. Now, the Lang business actually has its roots way back in 1848, And he and his wife bought a plot of land, hired some people, built a house, and they sold it for £150. The land only cost them 30 Made a nice profit. So they built two more houses, and they lived in one and sold one off, and, and so the business grew. Over a couple of years, his son took it over, and then his grandsons joined the business. And then eventually, by 1910, we have John William Lang running the business with his dad, and it was John Lang and son. And the business grew and grew, and they started taking on much more ambitious projects. And in fact, some of the biggest projects in the country have been built or partially built by John Lang or the Lang Group. And I'm thinking about things like the M1 and parts of the M6, which were the first ever motorways in the UK in 1958. They built the Severn Bridge, Coventry Cathedral, Berkeley Nuclear Power Station, one of the first nuclear power stations in the world and the London Central Mosque. It's a huge company. And years and years later, it got sold off for £2 billion. But during his lifetime, while he was the chairman, John Lang set up a number of charitable trusts. And one of them supported, and we're coming right back now full circle to our first story, a place called Tyndale House. Named after the same Tyndale who translated the Bible into English. And Tyndale House is a place at Cambridge University And it's a specialist resource into the research of the Old and New Testaments, established in 1945 and funded and continually funded to this day, to a large degree, by the money that John Lang set aside. Now, I imagine that many people, when they think about Tyndale, don't actually think about the Tyndale Bible, which is now 500 years old. They quite possibly see Tyndale written on the spines of some of their Bible reference books. And in fact, some of the most famous reference books came out of Tyndale House. Let me read what it says on their own website. The Tyndale Old Testament and New Testament commentaries have long been a trusted resource for Bible study. Written by some of the world's most distinguished evangelical scholars, 
these 66 volumes offer clear, reliable, and relevant explanations of every book in the Bible. And I've got some of them, and I know some people have got the full set. My ones are kind of yellow and orange. Maybe you've got the green versions, or they've changed the color occasionally. But I love this quote. The Tyndale volumes have long been the premier shorter-length commentary series on both Testaments throughout the English-speaking world. And they're not that short, so I hate to think what the longer-length versions are. There's a couple of things that struck me in this story. The first one is actually way back at the start. It reminded me of the parable of the talents, where they have this amount of money, they have the £30 that they bought the land for and then they have 150 pounds from their first house that they then invest and they keep doing that and they keep just stewarding their money really well and the impact that goes on to have is massive literally in scale with some of the buildings they built and then the second thing that struck me is again just that investment in something that's a bit abstract so this time it's an investment in knowledge but that actually that's had a huge impact and perhaps that feels even more relevant today. We have the internet and that is fantastic, but increasingly we are living in a world where it's hard to distinguish actually what is truth, what is reliable, what can we trust. And so to have somebody who has put generations worth of knowledge into the world to help distinguish what is true and to build up people's faith is really quite remarkable. And in the same way that Tyndale first translated the New Testament Latin, well, actually from Greek, into English, to this day, Tyndale House still employ translators who are checking and updating translations of the Bible to make sure they mean the same thing, even if the words are changed slightly, because as society changes, so does the way we need to communicate. Just lovely stories of generosity reaching across generations and generations. And doesn't it just make you think, what are the stories people are going to tell in 100, 200, 500 years time about our generation? Who are those people? Perhaps people who will never be acknowledged in their lifetime, who are giving generously now, who are sowing seeds that will go on to have hundreds of years of impact. And I was about to say, I don't know about you, but I know that actually, just like me, you will want to be one of those people, Simon. I want lots of people to be those kind of people who will be remembered, not because of who they were and their ego and their power and their position, but because they started something in motion which went far beyond what they ever expected. So let me steal a couple of minutes to wrap up this episode. And I'm going to take you way back to, to my early life and a story of generosity that really did transform me. And I think I said it before on the podcast. When I was about eight years old, my parents got divorced. And my mum was looking after my sister and I, and she couldn't really afford to keep the house we were living in and buy a car. But she had to have a car to get to work because she had to have a job that would pay for the cost of looking after two kids. Anyway, a friend of ours, and I have no idea who this person is, I've never asked, they gave us a car. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, wow, there are people out there who are so wealthy, they can own two cars. That's amazing. And then I thought to myself, wow, there are people out there who are so generous that they would give one of their cars away to us. Knowing, I imagine full well, we could never repay them. We couldn't give back the car. We couldn't pay them even in the future. And many years later, my stepdad helped me understand a principle, which he lived by and he exercised in my life. When person A gives to person B, it's not because they necessarily expect a return. 
But what they hope is that person B will give to person C and C will give to D and so forth and so on. And eventually it might come full circle in one way or another. Well, I look back when I was nine or 10 years old and seeing someone be generous to my family and to me, and it inspired me one day to want to be hopefully as generous as that. And so whoever that person is, one day I'll ask my mum, who was it who gave you that car? They deserve a vast amount of credit because I think and I hope that I've managed to take that generosity and like you say, Bex, in the parable of the talents, turn it into something even more because of what God has been gracious in giving to me and allowed me to give away. And isn't it amazing that those seemingly small gestures can go on to shape literally the course of people's lives? So the question is, which one of these are we going to do off the back of this episode? Are we going to be like the person who gave Simon's family a car and give something away, even if that's sacrificial? Are we going to be like Humphrey Monmouth and risk our reputation? Are we going to be like Cadbury and ensure that we're treating people with dignity? Or are we going to think about Amazing Grace and think how can we support creative endeavors, whether that is financially or whether that is giving people a platform or simply encouraging them? And are we going to think about Port Sunlight and ensure that we are acting with integrity in every part of our lives? I personally feel deeply challenged by all of those things. And I think I'm going to have to just sit in a dark room for a little while and figure out how to put some of those things into practice. But what I love whenever we share stories about generosity and giving, whether they're from hundreds of years ago or whether they're from just the other day, is the fact that it inspires action. And it just inspires us to have more conversations about giving as well. Well, I've been encouraged over the years by those stories of giving and by many others. And certainly it's not all about the grand gesture. It's not all about the billionaires who are giving away 95% of their estates when they die. It's not about those who give out of the excess and the surplus. Most impact day in, day out is made by people like you and me who give deliberately, who give regularly, in a disciplined manner, who give to the causes that are going to make the biggest difference. And it might be a small amount, but we know that in God's hands, he can multiply it and make a massive, massive difference. So if you have a favorite story about generosity or philanthropy, or if you have been impacted in some way by somebody else's generosity, please do reach out to us and let us know your stories. We love to hear them. You can email us where your treasure is at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at where your treasure is podcast and we would love to hear from you. Absolutely. And this is our last episode in the season on giving. But coming up very soon, so keep an eye on your podcast feed, we're going to have a couple of brilliant bonus episodes in the season break. And then we will be back very shortly with season six. 2024 will be upon us before we know it. So until then, be blessed. Remember, God gave so much for you. He gave his one and only son and we can give back to others almost in memory of him and because we love him in response to his amazing love for us. We look forward to catching up with you soon. That's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. See you next time. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go.